Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 22 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Therefore, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool, that all the house of Israel therefore Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, yesterday, well, not yesterday. Uh, what is it? Yeah, wait. Yeah, yesterday. It was yesterday. Yesterday was Christmas, uh, and obviously about the birth of Jesus. Um, if you were here with us for the Christmas Eve thing, Steph actually read an, another long passage from Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 20, telling us the story of the birth of Jesus. Um, and as a kid growing up, every year we'd sit down with my cousins, my grandma Betty. She would make an angel food cake. Uh, we, we'd do that beforehand. We, we'd read that passage from Luke, and we'd sing happy birthday uh, to Jesus because Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. 
And as Luke writes his gospel account, that's really volume one of all of the things that he's written. Um, Luke's gospel, volume one, it, it basically summarizes, it encapsulates everything that happened in Jesus' earthly life, his, his birth, um, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then volume two of Luke's writing it is about Jesus' ministry, not on earth, but from heaven as commissioned through the church. And so volume one is about Jesus, his life. Volume two uh, is about the, the life, the ministry of Jesus through the church. Um, and, and what happens, it's really interesting that in Luke chapter two, we see the birth of Jesus happen. Uh, and, and in Acts chapter two, we see another birth. That some, that a, birth a second birth happens that Luke puts, interestingly, in the second chapter of his book. Um, so in Luke chapter two, we see the birth of the new Adam, right? This, the the, the, the archetypal human, Jesus who comes and fulfills everything that Adam was meant to fulfill as this new Adam who, who resists evil and temptation and stays true to God and his word. And then in Acts chapter two, we see uh, a new humanity emerge because of this birth of the church. Um, so Luke two, birth of Jesus, Acts two, the birth of the church, and these two births run parallel together. In fact, it's, it's Jesus' birth that happens in Bethlehem that occurs so that we might be born again, that the church might be spiritually reborn. And like Jesus' existence, um, as you see throughout his life and his ministry that Luke documents, is very unique, so too is the existence of the church. The church is unique. It has this distinctness. It has this set-apartness. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a theme that Peter uses over and over throughout his, his preaching, this, this idea of being set apart, of being made holy, of being um, consecrated or sanctified. He uses this over and over, especially in 1 Peter chapter 2, that you are a chosen people, a holy race, a people for God's own possession. You've been set apart, distinct from the world. And what we want to do today, or what I want to do today, and I hope you'll come along with me, is, is draw this connection between the birth of Jesus and the birth of the church. Why the birth of Jesus uh, carries uh, great importance into the birth of the church, and why the birth of the church really needs to revel in the birth of Christ. And so the, the two things, that I'm going to look at the what, what made the church different, what were the characteristics of the church, and the why. It's like, what caused this? What, why was this the way that they operated? So those two things are going to be in the back of our minds. Now, as, as Steph had just read here um, in Acts chapter 2, I wanted to give you a little bit of context instead of just jumping straight to verse 42 uh, through 47. Um, Acts chapter 2 is happening on the heels of the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, he appears to his disciples after his resurrection for 40 days, and then he goes and he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are looking up into heaven, and then the angels appear and say, hey, go back and wait for the promised one. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And what we see happen in Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost is, is what we talk about, is what we know it is, a special day that was already existed in, in the Jewish calendar, a holiday for the church, um, where there were a lot of people coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, and the disciples were sort of hunkered down in this little shack, waiting for the promised one, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And if you're familiar with the story of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, the, like a, a, flame of tongue, or a tongue of flames resting upon them. They start talking in different languages. It's really confusing. People are, are there in the city who are, who are there for the festival, are, are seen. They're, they're, um, they're spectators. I can't think of words today. They're spectators of what's going on here, and, and they're perplexed by what's happening, so much so that they ask, are, are these people drunk? It's, it's early in the morning. Uh, this seems to be the most logical conclusion to come to, that these people, though they're talking and, and, and speaking in different words, they must be drunk. Although, Peter stands up, and he starts to preach in verse 22, and says, listen, they're not drunk. Um, here's what's going on. In verse 22, he starts to preach the first ever gospel sermon, the first Jesus-centered, Christ-centered sermon um, here in Acts 2, 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He's connecting to a historical human being, this man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he starts talking, he starts preaching about what's going on here, um, and, and this promise that's being fulfilled to God's people through Jesus the Christ. 
And he makes this gospel presentation of Jesus who lived this perfect life that we were meant to live. He died a substitutionary death that, that we should have died, but he dies for us in our place. And now this new thing is happening. God is creating for uh, himself a new people. He's, he's raised up Christ and he's raising up the church. And he says, he makes this conclusion uh, about the, the, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. He says, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter gets up, he preaches Jesus, makes sense of what's going on here, and then what happens next is, is after providing this historical account of this Jesus of Nazareth, of, of basing it within the context of God's promises throughout the Old Testament. He, he references uh, King David here a couple of times, talking about the, the scriptural basis for this Messiah who's coming. He then preaches the significance that Jesus has been made, been made both Lord and Christ by God. And now we see this effectual response of the people. After hearing all of the things that Peter lays out. Now they were, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. All the people who were listening, all the bystanders who were listening, wondering, are these people drunk? They were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there he's saying, listen, the people are talking this way because the Holy Spirit has descended. He says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and there added that day about, were about 300 or 3,000 souls. A lot going on, a lot going on. There's this response that happens, and, and they say, what should we do? They were cut to the heart, say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized. And then he goes on and says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, already, Peter has been explaining the crookedness, the wickedness, the bentness of this current generation, and the fact how he throws it back in the people's face several times that they were the ones responsible for killing this perfect son of God, right? Only a crooked generation could kill a perfect man. He says this corruption that's happened in the world, and he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. He's saying this is not the way that it has to be. There is a way out. Now, a lot of times when people hear this to save yourself from this crooked generation, the, the, things, the, the idea is to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, to figure it out, to make better decisions, to separate yourselves from other people. But that's not at all what's being said here because we see the word receive being used over and over. So when, Paul, when Peter is saying, save yourself from this crooked generation, what he's really saying is, receive your rescue. He says they, they receive their word, the word. They receive the message of the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. There's this receiving that happens. Now this is interesting because what we say about Christmas is that God gives us the greatest gift ever, right, of Jesus, the greatest gift of all time. And here again, we see this, this gift that's being given. We're given the Holy Spirit. We're seeing this word of God being given and received. People receive God's forgiveness. They receive the word. See, this is all about the, the, the beginning of the birth of Jesus is about receiving a gift the birth of the church is about receiving a gift. And a lot of people received it. It says that day, about 3,000 people received this gift. They were baptized. And what baptism is, it's a sign of spiritual rebirth. Jesus talks about this um, when he's talking to Nicodemus. You must be born again, that, that of spirit and of water, right? The, the word of God changes us. It, it gives us a spiritual rebirth, and baptism is a sign of that rebirth that happens. And it's in this spiritual rebirth and the act of baptism of going down, being buried with Christ in his death and raised with him in his resurrection, we see the shoot of this new humanity coming out of the branch of Jesse. A new humanity is being brought up from what was once devastated. 
And it actually turns out to not just be this tiny little thing, but actually it just keeps going and going and going, so much so that by Acts chapter 17, not, it's not just 3,000 people. You start to see hundreds of people coming to Christ at a time as the gospel's preached. In Acts chapter 17, it says that Christians um, are they're, they're accused of turning the world upside down. That's the kind of impact that this, the first wave of gospel renewal, the first wave of this new humanity being birthed in the world happened. It changes the world. And for three centuries of the early church, we see the story of explosive growth going. There are droves of people coming to faith, coming to hear about this Jesus who, who put on flesh and dwelt among God's people that lived a life that we were meant to live, died the death that we should have died and by faith in him, we are made alive and made right with God. And so because of this, the church goes from this sort of obscurity, uh, the place of, of being kind of like on the margins of society, to then eventually displacing the dominant culture of that time. That the Greco-Roman world, which was the dominant worldview, the dominant sort of culture of that time, got so shooken up by, this, by the, the, the infiltration of Christians that it changed everything in the Greco-Roman world. Now the question is, how did this happen? How did they get so much traction? How did the church take off like this? Well, it's one, because the gospel was preached, and that's what happens when the gospel is preached. People get converted to know who the real God is and to understand salvation and put their trust in Jesus. But, but, but the other part of this is that the gospel makes a unique kind of people. Christians are different. The church is different. Now, a lot of times when we think of different, it, it kind of carries a negative connotation. Like, if, if I make a sandwich for my kids, I'm told that I make it different than my wife, all right? And it's not good. She cuts the crust. I don't. I say suck it up and eat the crust. But it's different, and then push back about it. And we, kind of, we might have this, this mindset of being different as Christians, or, or even thinking of, as, of Christians, if maybe you're on the outside. You're, you're looking from the outside in at what's going on at the church and say, well, Christians are kind of different. They're a little weird, okay? And that might be a little bit true. But, but really, at the core here, the kind of difference that we see in the church is a good difference. There's something going on in the church that was attractively different, that sort of just had this gravitational pull that continued to pull in the masses or, or large groups of people to hear the gospel and to live life among the people of God. And, and we see some characteristics in verses uh, 42 through 47 that, that tell us what they're up to, like what the things that the church was doing that made them a little bit different. We see that they were learning. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were worshiping together. They were praying together. They were going to the temple together on mission. They were trying to you know, evangelize and share the gospel and tell people about this Messiah who had come that all the prophecies, all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to and say the, the one, the promised one, the Messiah has come. We see them creating this kind of community where they're caring and sharing and serving one another. They're eating together. They're celebrating Now they do all of these things because at the core of this, at the core of their identity is this. It's at the beginning of verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. See what Peter is saying here, I guess what Luke is saying uh, as he documents this, Luke is saying that, that the early church, the Christians were a devoted people they were primarily devoted to God, and because they were devoted to God, they were devoted to one another. Now, to be devoted means that you are dedicated to something, that you've, kind of, you've given yourself to something. You've made a commitment to a purpose or to a cause. And when you devote yourself to something, essentially what you're doing is you're saying that, that I am placing this thing, whatever it might be, at the center of my world, at the center of my life. To be devoted to this means that this, is, this thing has a gravitational pull that everything else in my life orbits around. This thing that you're devoted to consumes the bulk of your time, your resources, your energy. It excites you. It's what stirs your affections. It's what ignites your imagination. When you've when you got time to daydream, this is a thing that you're probably daydreaming about. That's what you're devoted to. Now, because of our, 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 
our sinful bent as humanity, because sin has infected us, and because how our culture shapes us, we are mostly devoted to ourselves. We live in, in one of the most individualistic, if not the most individualistic society in the, 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 the course of human history. We're, we're radically individualized. There's this, this massive focus on the self. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all raging narcissists. Right? You can be devoted to yourself without being narcissistic because we have found socially acceptable ways to go about being devoted to ourselves. You see this, um, you see this take place at school or, or in your workplace. That because you're devoted to your success, to, because you're devoted to your reputation, because you're devoted to money and the sort of comforts or lifestyle that it will bring you, because you want to be recognized, you overwork, you grind, 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 grind. And to our culture, that's something that's very much applauded. In fact, I mean, that, that you could say even to some degree, to, to a good degree, the scriptures commands us to work hard, to do good work, to work with excellence, but there's a way that you can do that where it gets twisted, so I'm not necessarily working unto the Lord, but I'm working for myself. That, that I'm going after these things for myself. You can do it in the gym, right? We, we can say that a good thing to do would be to steward the physical body that God has given you, but you can warp that and make it about yourself by either working too hard, focusing on your, your looks at the gym, just giving your whole life to the gym and what you eat and constantly being obsessed about that and where you put your money, all of that stuff. You're all feeding into this idea of self. How do I, how do I make myself satisfied in my body? Or on the opposite side of that is you're not going to the gym, you're sitting on the couch because this is what makes you comfortable. Because your comfort the thing that you want the most, the thing that feeds you, you, yourself is comfort. You can see this in parenting where we bend over backwards to be seen as a good parent, but the reason why we wouldn't be see good as, seen as a good parent is so that people can say, wow, you're a good parent. So we have that sense of validation in ourselves. Now this is so crazy. We, we have this ability to warp, the, and these are good things here. I think that we should be devoted to being good parents. I do think that we should work out. I do think that, that we should rest and enjoy the, 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 the recreation that God gives us. And I do think we should work hard and do well at school and all of these things. But these are good things that are easily warped when our, our sinful bent, when our sinful heart takes place and, and, and twists them to, to serve our own purposes. So much so that we can even use religion in devotion to ourselves. I can perform, I can keep the rules, I can look like a good person, I can be more moral than my neighbor, and I can do these things just so that I get this constant feedback of, wow, good for you, right? It's about me. I make it, it's not about God, it's not about honoring God, it's about, it becomes about me. Now what's going on here is that our culture is just consumed by this, the, the, the self-absorption. And, and verses 42 through 47 shows us something different than this, the, the, the culture's natural tendency to be uh, devoted to self. What we see is a displacement of self in the church. It shows us that the gospel displaces ourselves from the center of our own universe and places God himself right there in the middle. See, that's, that's what the Christians were devoted to. They were devoted to the teachings. Who are the teachings about? It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel message. The early Christian church is ultimately devoted to God, and because God is devoted to his people, they too are devoted to God's people as well. And because God is placed at the center, what we see now is a radically unselfish group of people. I mean, I mean, it's crazy. You, I think a lot of times, at least at the beginning of my, my Christian life, I would read this and say, man, it'd be nice if God still would do this in our world. Like, it'd be nice if church could still be like this, maybe one day. In fact, um, in, in, <laughs> I was taking some uh, seminary courses, and we, we, it was, an, uh, um, it was a, a course about the early church and, and trying to draw the connections between the early church and the modern church, and and my thesis was I had to write a paper. I was like, I really think this is what the church should look like. And my professor replied back to me, oh, yeah, it'd be nice, but too, it's too bad that stuff doesn't happen anymore. And I said, well, you should come, come hang out with us for a little bit because God is doing this. Isn't, this what we see in verses 42 through 47 isn't just like a one-off thing, a one-time historical thing that happens in the church life. This is something that God continues to replicate. And here's what we see with this radically unselfish people as they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We see that they're breaking bread together. They're eating together. They're praying together. 
Verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Do we see this church like living out of this, like the reality that they have been displaced from the center of the universe in how they're laying their lives down for one another? That they're caring for the physical and spiritual needs of each other. It's not just this, this one guy's responsible for it. It's like everybody's taking ownership of each other. Now, it's easy for us, especially kind of where we're seated right now, is, is we look at this and we think, oh, this, this is like, this is socialism. But what's going on here in the early church is not communism. It's not socialism. It's not any kind of government program. See, that, communism, socialism are two unbiblical ideas that put the government at the center instead of God. So what we're seeing here in verses 44 and 45 is a physical and social outworking of a spiritual reality. Now, what is that spiritual reality? The spiritual reality is that the gospel of Jesus creates a new family. Now, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. You now have a heavenly father, and as God is your heavenly father, you have brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you have this new family. And so that's what we're seeing here. That, that's really what best describes what's going on in verse 42 through 47 is we're, we're seeing the life of the church family. And while they're a family, these people are far from uh, homogenous. If you, if you remember, back at the beginning here, as, as Pentecost kicks off, right, there's this mixed multitude of people there. From, and let, me, let me just read here real quickly. Um, it's in verse 5. It says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout Jews, men from every nation under heaven. And he lists off a bunch of different places. And they're talking different languages. Um, he's like... Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, people from Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, I don't even know some of these words, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors of Rome. Like here we have a mixed multitude, different cultures, different places, different languages, all kinds of different people present at Pentecost. And they're the ones who are converted and find themselves now placed in this family. And what this shows us is the church is a diverse group of people. It's ethnically diverse. It's economically diverse. It's socially diverse. It's diverse in gender. This is part of what made the church so attractive. Uh, that, 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 that attractively different thing is that everybody was coming into the church. It's for anyone. Now, our church, our, our culture... Our culture, you hear all these, these mantras of diversity and inclusion and community. We hear it all the time, which they're good things. Those are good things. But our culture tends to detach them from the message of the gospel. Instead of saying that, that we are unified because of our faith in Jesus, it says we're unified because we're Americans or we're unified because this is our political leaning or we're unified because this is, we agree on this specific thing. What, what the church does is say the, the one thing that brings us together, the one thing that topples down every single wall of the dividing wall of hostility is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, at the church, we see diversity and inclusion and community. But when our culture hijacks those three things and detaches it from the gospel, what they're doing is failing to realize that diversity, inclusion, and community are byproducts of a distinctively Christian community. These are ideas that originate from within the church because of the gospel message. Before, this is something that might cook your noodle here. Before Christianity... No other religion, no other society had a desire for diversity. No other society, no other religion. That notion itself stands on the shoulders of Christian values and beliefs because what you have in other societies and other religions is this hierarchical thing. 
There's a preferential treatment. You see in other religions, there's this, this specific locale of where this religion takes off. It has a preference to this region, this part of the world. You see in other religions, there's a preference for men over women, right? The, the men are the ones who are, are the patriarchs, and, and the women sort of get pushed to the margins. You see, the, the, in philosophy, it's, it's those who are well-educated or who are affluent who are the beneficiaries of, of, of philosophies of this Greco-Roman worldview. And the uneducated and the lowly are pushed aside. But here at the church, we see all people being brought in together. And the major doctrine, the key thing behind the diversity that we see here in the early church is this. It's the Imago Dei. It's the idea, it's the doctrine that all have been created in the image of God made with equal dignity, value, and worth. Our culture, especially in a capitalistic society, we tend to put our identity or our worth based upon our 401k, what's in our bank account, right? Our value is tied to that. But the Imago Dei says, whether you're rich or poor, you are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Same with educated versus uneducated, or, or white or black or Asian or, or, or Hispanic or whatever you might be. All are created in the image of God. Imago Dei, we carry this. Now this is a uniquely Christian belief. And if you want to trace human rights back to its origin, back to its, the idea of universal human rights, like the thing that, that pushes the, the idea of, of social justice, if you want to follow that back to its starting place, you, you'll eventually end up back at the Imago Dei. See, this diverse community that we see at the church is a natural outworking of this doctrine, the Imago Dei. And the, and the gospel tells us, well, we see it in Acts chapter two, when Peter's talking, he says, listen, th- this message, is, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. There's this inclusiveness that the gospel is for all people. Now, other, other religions, like I've said, they lack this far-reaching diversity. There's, there's preferential treatment to class or gender or locale or ethnicity, but not in Christianity. In fact, a historian says that no other religion took in so many groups of people and the strata of society. Christianity grabs them all, brings them in. The lowly, the unimportant, the poor, the rich, the uneducated, the educated men, women, and children alike, they are all brought into this family of God and seen as equals in the eyes of God. In fact, that's one of the things that you see, one of the commands throughout the church life in James. He says, hey, don't be partial towards one another. God shows no partiality. You shouldn't either because we're all made in the image of God. Now what's crazy is that as diverse as this church was, as as we see every tongue and tribe and and culture coming in together, this big melting pot, which America was not the first melting pot, all right? The church was. The church was. Brought them all together. And, and, and the shocker here, as diverse as the church was, there was this radical, diver, this radical devotion to one another. They spent a lot of time together. It, it keeps going over and over. You see the word together. They're devoted to the teachings together. The, the brotherhood, the fellowship, they're eating and praying together. They're worshiping together. They, they're seeing things. There's awe that coming upon them together. They're living on mission, going to the temple together. They had all things in common. They're meeting physical needs. Now, not only are they meeting physical needs, but there's this spiritual side of this where they're sharing their burdens. They're sharing their hearts. They're sharing their lives. It's this life-on-life realness where they have really this, this interwovenness that you see in the church that the gospel creates. And so it's not just that, that in theory they've been made family, that now they have a father in heaven, but they're actually living like that's true. Now this is the kind of community that we long for. Deep down in our heart of hearts, this is the kind of community, well, that we were made for. Now, Initially, that might sound scary, to, to, to live life so transparently, to, to, to know and be known, to love and be loved. Like, th- there is a little, bit of, of, um, a little bit of scariness that comes along with that. Like, what is this exactly going to look like? But in our heart of hearts, w- when we are opened to this idea 
of having such a, a breadth to the relationships, not just within our, our biological family, but within the family of God, there's something attractive about that. And there's no wonder then why day by day people are being drawn in because the life, the kind of life that the church was living. And as people are drawn in, they're hearing the good news, they're experiencing the gospel like in, in flesh and blood sort of way. People are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. What we see is this attractively different community. There's, there's a, we're drawn to beauty, right? There, there's something about beauty that just pulls us in, and the church presented something beautiful, relational beauty, spiritual beauty, the, a connection to truth, the devotion to the teaching of the apostles and to the word of God that pulled people in. When we try to make a community like this, detached from Jesus, when we try to make a community like this just for the sake of community, it will always fail. It doesn't stand a chance. Community for the sake of community will always self-sabotage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in, in his book, Life Together. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. It's gonna happen. You love it? You love the dream of it, the ideal of it? That community that you're in is going to feel crushed by that. And so what it takes, it takes more than this idea. It takes more than a dream or a vision to materialize this kind of community. What it takes is God himself coming to the world to establish this kind of community. Because in order to have that kind of community, what has to happen, it must be established by love. And this is what Christmas is all about. John 3, 16, famous passage says, for God so loved the world. What did he do? That he sent his only son. So we see God send his son because he loved the world. In, in, at the climax of Jesus, right as he's getting ready to, to go be betrayed and crucified in, in uh, John's gospel, he, he's praying in this, the high priestly prayer in John 17. And he's praying to God. He says, you sent me into this world. And John 17, 9 says, for their sake, for the sake of the people, I consecrate myself. I, I set myself apart. I devote myself so that they may also be sanctified and set apart in service to God. Do you see what's happening here? This community happens because Jesus was devoted. It's not about the church, church's devotion first. That's, that's not the first thing that drives this kind of community. What drives this kind of community is realizing that Jesus is first and foremost devoted. He says in that prayer that I'm devoted to the heavenly father. I'm, I'm, de I'm devoted to accomplish everything that he has sent me to do. And we see that in the fact that Jesus came and he emptied himself of his glory so that we could be made beautiful. Jesus entered into obscurity. He, he, wa he was ruling the cosmos. And he entered into obscurity, born into this, this I don't know, a barn of a, an inn, hanging out with cows and sheep and whatever else is laying around. He entered into obscurity so that we could be known by God for eternity. Jesus was devoted so much so to the plans of the Father that he was rejected so that we could experience and know the real love of the Heavenly Father that satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. Throughout his whole ministry, we see Jesus lived the devoted life, giving himself away, right? He, he gave himself. He, he put away his, his own interests, his own desires, his own whatever he wanted. He, he displaced that from the center of his universe and said, God, your will be done. Because he was committed to the will of the Father, he was committed then to the people of God. So much so that he entered the world from this humble start of a, of a wooden manger and then moved to the gruesome wooden cross. That's how committed Jesus was. That's how devoted Jesus is. Fully devoted. Gave himself away for our sake and for the glory of God. Now this is, 
This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. This is what makes Christmas so special. It's because we're seeing the gift given, right? We're seeing this givenness, not just in the birth, but in the whole life of Jesus. The, the virgin birth didn't happen, then none of it, uh, the rest of Jesus' ministry would have mattered. And what Christianity says that no other religion, no other, no other philosophy makes this kind of claim, this is what makes Christianity unique, is, is that only the God of the Bible gives himself away so fully for us. Only the God of the Bible would become mortal, put on flesh, and live among us. Only the God of the Bible has the power to resist the temptations and constant bombarding of, of evil and wickedness in this life and resist it perfectly. Only the God of the Bible would put on flesh so that his flesh could be torn apart as a substitutionary death for us. No other God has shown such level of devotion. No other God. This is why Jesus is the one true God. All the other gods are worthless idols, the scriptures say. And because Jesus was devoted, the church is founded upon his devotion. It's because Jesus was devoted, the church is perfected by his devotion. It's because Jesus laid aside his glory and his honor, his own interest, the church now exists. And when you see what Jesus has done for you, for us, it's impossible to not be changed by it. When you really see it, with your eyes of faith opened, what happens is that it unwarps that selfish bend that the culture sort of curates. It, 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 it replaces ourselves from the center of the universe with God, with Jesus with his mission, with his people. That's exactly what Acts 2, 42-47 is describing. It's giving us this vision for the way that our lives ought to be if Jesus is at the center of your universe. Devoted to God, right? That's the first thing. There's this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to worship and to the word and the discipleship and following Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. They were devoted to God. They were devoted community. They were devoted to one another, to the brotherhood, to the fellowship. They were eating. They were sharing and caring. And, and it's like, you got a need, and I have something I can sell that can help meet that need. They were willing to do that. They were helping each other, investing in one another, sharing life together. And they were devoted to mission. They were devoted to, to making Jesus known to their kids, to their city, to the world. In fact, the church is responsible for the development of things like hospitals, orphanages, schools, homeless shelters. I mean, every, every religion has this, this, they know that we should care for the poor, but, but Christianity really leaned into it to the point where a lot of critics in that first century were, were critical of Christianity because there's no way this community can last. They're, give, they're too generous with each other. There's no way they can maintain this. And look what, 2,000 years later, the church still stands. The gates of hell cannot stand against it. See, the church is devoted to making Jesus known both in word and in deed, where they're preaching the gospel at every opportunity. We're, we're telling people of the grace that we have in Christ. See, this this devotion that we see, this devotion that the church is called to live into, is a reciprocation of the devotion that we've already seen in Christ. If Jesus hadn't been conceived by the Holy Spirit, if Jesus hadn't been born of a virgin, if Jesus didn't live that perfect life, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, the church would not exist. But because Jesus has done all those things, the church is here. Our church is here. And by God's grace, there will be more churches throughout the world because of this reality. 
And the same spirit that was active in the, the, the conception and the birth of Jesus is at work right now in the church. See, that's what Pentecost is all about. Right? The spirit descends upon Mary. She finds herself to be with child. The spirit descends upon the church. And now guess what? The church is reproducing. The church is growing. People are coming because the spirit is at work. Jesus said that was the promised one, the one who is greater than he would become. He would be sent into the world. And not just that we have a Jesus in the flesh. It's even better that, that the spirit of Christ is now in the heart of every Christian, leading and empowering us to live this life of devotion. And so we see this inextricable connection between the birth of Jesus and the birth of church. We cannot live, we cannot be this Acts 2 kind of church without the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot be this Acts 2 church without understanding and going deeper and deeper into the gospel. We cannot be this kind of church if we are, are willy-nilly in our, in our commitments and our devotion to God and to one another. And the way that we become more and more like this church, and even better, I, I think it's like, I think this is the starting point. I think, I think we got a, like, we can build on this. And the way that we build on this is, is by having this, this real power that comes from God, that, that he just keeps giving. He gave us a son, and gave us a spirit. And so now the church comes alive, invigorated by that spirit, and invigorated with that power. And so I, I thank God for what he's done here in the first century and how he continues to sustain and grow and develop and bring a people to himself that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ the King. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace and that there's nothing that we did to earn this. There's nothing that we did to pull ourselves. There's no way we could save ourselves. All we can do is receive from you. And you are a good God who gives good gifts. You've given us your son and you've given us your spirit. And now, God, as we continue um, this journey of faithfulness, help us to, to be fully devoted to you. Help us be fully devoted uh, followers of Jesus, fully devoted to one another and seeing the mission of God continue to advance in our cities and beyond. Thank you for all that you've done for us, God. We praise you. In the, the mighty name of your son, Jesus, amen. Many